Hey everyone, AJ here, pastor of Life Groups and Discipleship here at Three Crosses. And today we're here to talk about Colossians 3 verses 12 to 14 as we move our way through Colossians 3. And so with that, let's go deeper. Well, after a couple technical issues on our end, we are sitting back here in our podcast studio with Pastor Danny Strange. Pastor Danny, welcome back to the show. Thanks for inviting me back over and over again. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, we're going over Colossians 3 today, uh, moving on from Colossians 3 verse 11, which we had called our little detour in this series. And uh, before we started off into our text today, I wanted to get your thoughts on the overall trajectory of where we went through our little detour. Um, do you think those were crucial ideas that we needed to address? Or you know, was that just us getting on this cultural bandwagon, talking about things we wanted to? Uh, and you know, what role does the church on Sundays have in addressing some of these topics, you know, racial, um, ethnicity, gender, uh, work, all these different, uh, identity terms that are thrown out there. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of all those things. I don't know if I would say talk about the cultural thing the way you talked about <laughs> it, but, uh, I think first and foremost, we see in the scriptures, we patterned these specific topics after Galatians three twenty nine and Colossians three, three 11, um, talking about these categories like male and female slave or free, uh, these different uh, ethnic and national uh, origins that folks have. And so we did grab it from the scriptures, but at the same time, uh, the reason that Paul was bringing these categories up in the scriptures is because these were the literal, uh, in our vernacular, identities that people were wrestling with what to do with in their time and place. And so um, even though we talked these about these because they were in the scriptures, we also chose them because still today we are wrestling with what is the role of our ethnic identity? What is the role of our gender identity? What is the role of my social identity, my work uh, in, in my faith? And so when it comes to the role of the church and all these things, we try to live in this tension where it's, we don't feel like it's our job to preach the newspaper or whatever it is. Um, but I love what Tim Keller says about contextualization. He says that the gospel contextualization is answering the questions that people are asking about life and faith and religion. And so part of what we want to do as a church is when there are things on people's minds and they want to know, how does my faith relate to this topic? We want to be equipped to give them an answer to say, hey, you're wrestling with your gender identity as it relates to church. Well, the Bible talks about that. Let's mm -hmm. say, let's see what the scriptures teach in regards to this area. So I would say a little bit of both. It's in in. Colossians 3.11, it's in Galatians 3.29, and it's in the hearts and minds of our people as they're trying to decide what does it mean that I died and my life is now hidden with Christ in God. Yeah, some very relatable and very relevant sermon and podcast episodes. So if you haven't checked those out, I'd encourage you to scroll down and uh, click on those episodes to listen to them or uh, take a look at our website and revisit some of those sermons. Um Today, we are moving on into the next three verses, Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Let me read it, and then we'll uh, jump in. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
So it's interesting that this passage starts off, uh, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And what Paul tends to do a lot of the times is wield this language that was geared toward God's people, towards Israel, and he uses it towards Gentile churches, towards uh, churches that were intermixed with Jews and Gentiles saying, hey, God's people have been redefined through the blood of Jesus. And so um, there's a lot of striking uh, similarities in this language between passages like Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 32, um, all over the New Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all these places. But the interesting thing is, you know, if you've been tracking our conversations and tracking our sermons up to this point, you might have left thinking that, hey, this was something that I need to personally wrestle with. I need to surrender my identities, find my identity united with Christ above and look back down and see all these things that I need to steward well. Yet Paul, he introduces us to this verse here and he begins by using community language, which I'm trying to track here. Where did this turn from like personal faith to community language that is so strong and powerful um, that includes everybody in the church into the, this new community of God. Where did that transition exactly happen? Did I miss something here? And uh, am I supposed to be reading this through the lens of community? It's a feels like a trick question because it, uh, <laughs> you go back through Colossians 3 and you'll see that I think every uh, time that Paul's addressing you, like a, a person, it's actually the second person plural, like y'all, talking to the community, all of you. Um, and so on one hand, he's been talking to the community the whole time. And for us, possibly, as American, Western, individualistic people, we always read everything about ourselves. And so part of it is we need to get into this ancient Eastern mind and realize that we are part of a community. But second, I think part of the what the gospel has done is the gospel has bought us into a community that mm. we learn as we read through the writings of Paul is that we are not merely saved individually from our sin into eternal life, but we are saved into this new people, this community, this body of Christ, these new brothers and sisters, adopted children of God. And so this is a new construct for those of us who are saved, especially those of us who are Gentiles and grafted in to the covenant community. And then third... I think part of the reason we read this individually is because when we read the vice list a couple of weeks ago, talking about the things to put off, a lot of these things are things that we individually struggle with. We struggle with malice or greed or rage or lust or these different concepts, and we are all programmed. And I think it's even intended in Paul's writing that we are thinking about our own struggle with sin. And so it is interesting as we start to switch gears and talk about the virtues that we do read these virtues and inherently we see them as community virtues. You mentioned the virtues, and that's exactly where Paul goes here. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, uh, which would make sense now that these virtues, as you pointed out on Sunday, have a lot to do with community. And uh, one of the things that I loved about your sermon is that you juxtaposed these virtues with the traditional Greek virtue lists of the time. And you mentioned uh, two characters who are really famous, uh, Plato and Aristotle. They're very famous, I guess, in philosophy circles. But um, if you've never heard of them, um, just kind of give a rundown really quick. Um, there's a, a classic painting where Plato is uh, depicted as pointing up. And Aristotle is like pointing outward toward the people. And I think that's very symbolic of the way they thought. 
uh, Plato looked to something called like these higher forms of things um, saying like, okay, if I have a dog, I know that all with all the breeds and variations of a dog, I know there's a dog because there must be some like higher form of dog out there. Whereas Aristotle would say, okay, I'm looking outward. I can gather evidence. I can make hypothesis uh, claims. I can collect data and make determinations. If you're hearing scientific thought, you're hearing correctly, like Aristotle heavily influenced all those things. And so you applied this way of thinking to the traditional Greek virtues, uh, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice, and saw how if you were a platonic thinker, like you were thinking, okay, somebody who is deep in thought about these higher forms or um, Aristotelian is what they call it. Um, you're somebody who is presenting themselves outward and it kind of had that feel going on. Now, you don't need to be a philosopher to understand the Bible, but I have a skeptical question here oh. because wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice seem like great ways to live. Uh, it kind of reminds me of this dialogue that Paul has in uh, with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians one where it's talking about where is the wise person, where is the philosopher of this age, where where is the wisdom of this world, and so I see a competing clash of wisdom here, and so my skeptical question is, man, those virtues seem so good. Mm. Uh, where do they fall short? Why mm. uh, pursue the way of Jesus? Because it seems like even when you're listing these virtues of Jesus, it seems like maybe. Plato and Aristotle were onto something maybe better. Mm. So where do you see that um, shortcoming of Plato and Aristotle and ancient Greek virtue? Yeah, I, th I think Plato and Aristotle were onto something great. Hmm. I would not say better. I would sure. actually say the opposite. Uh, <laughs> I think one thing that's helpful to understand, like you said, you don't need to understand philosophy to understand the Bible, but um, Paul grew up and in, in the New Testament church grew up in a Greco-Roman world that was largely influenced by these primary characters and some others who all practiced this Western style of reflective philosophy. And what reflective philosophy is, is really a, it's a philosophical construct that comes from reflecting on on humanity, reflecting on the world, reflecting on creation. So like you said, whether you're reflecting on, hey, where does this dog come from? Are you reflecting on the manifestation out in the world? You're reflecting and trying to figure out, okay, as we look at life, what do we see, right? And so Plato, uh, Aristotle, and even Confucius at an Eastern level all practice this reflective philosophy. But Paul grew up in a Western world, like in a sense of not Confucius world, but Socrates, Plato, Aristotle world, um, with this philosophy that reflects on life. And so that said, uh, when Paul is talking philosophically, part of what he's doing is just reflecting on life. Right? And so these virtues of wisdom, courage, moderation, justice, there's a lot of overlap with New Testament ethics, right? right? Wisdom is Sophia. That's a word that shows up in the New Testament all the time, right? This idea of moderation is very similar to the New Testament concept of self-control, which is talked about all the time. Justice is the Greek word diakasune, uh, which means righteousness, um, which is either justice in the world or righteousness. Like we talk about righteousness before God, same Greek word. Right. And so what I would say the role of philosophy is, is it only gets you so far. Hmm. Right. So if you read Romans one talks about the heavens declare the glory of God, we relearn that from the Psalms and we can learn about the world through general revelation. That's the theological term. And so just by looking around, there's evidence of a creator. We know there's a higher power, but we know as Christians 
that it takes more than general revelation to help us understand the gospel. We need the specific revelation of Jesus Christ, of the scriptures, of the gospel message. And God delivers to us this specific revelation about himself. And through that specific revelation, now we have the pathway to eternal life, the gospel of Jesus. I think philosophy is the same. I think through Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these different folks, we can learn about kind of general revelation about wisdom around the way the world works, but it only gets you so far when Jesus steps onto the earth or when the the Old and New Testaments are written, we get something revealed about God that's richer and deeper and better and truer and leads you farther, even all the way down the pathway towards eternity. And so I think that these different reflective philosophers can only get you so far because they're only reflecting on the natural world. But when you look at Paul as philosopher, he is also reflecting on the specific revelation from God about the person and work of Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. So even like we talked about in our sermon yesterday, we see these different virtues in this list coming up because Jesus changed the game of what is wise, what is understanding, what is true and what is truly virtuous by his demonstration and by his own personhood. One of the things you did in your sermon, which I appreciated, was tie all these virtues and said, hey, these actually get expressed in community. Like you can't have compassion if you're not interacting with somebody. You can't be kind to somebody if you're like not in a relationship with anybody. You can't be humble, gentle and patient uh, when there's no situation to be humble, gentle and patient in. And so uh, this leads to the next verse in verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that word bear with is like put up with something and um, sort of like these actions and attitudes are like immature or tiresome, like put up with each other and bear with them and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance, uh, a quarrel, a complaint in other translations against someone. And this brings up something that we had talked about in the detour section of our series. Um, We talked about some heavy stuff in this series, whether it's gender, whether it's race, whether it's work. And uh, one of the laments that we were having off air is just, man, I wonder how many people out there are in the church that don't have anybody to talk with about some of these deep struggles. And you had mentioned once that oftentimes the pastor or staff uh, or the staff member ends up bearing the brunt of it because people just don't have anybody. And I'd imagine somebody's looking at these texts and a similar problem arises where it's like, hey, how can I express these good Jesus virtues if I'm not around anybody or I don't know anybody? And so I want to gear this question toward community, uh, especially here at Three Crosses. So I have a couple questions here. Number one, help us understand these virtues as they play out in community. Like why does the community of the church matter so much? And then two, maybe address some of the obstacles that you have seen in your tenure here at Three Crosses that make it a little bit more difficult to join into community and maybe some ways that people have actually found their way in community and been able to grow in these specific virtues. Yeah, man, this, uh, this community stuff is interesting. Even thinking about philosophy, you know, we, in Greek philosophy, a lot of kind of what you would pull from it as you study these different philosophers is that really life kind of becomes about yourself, right? In a sense. So you you become the best version of yourself. You amass wealth so that you can be generous, which is for the community. You can have this magnificence in the sense of like bestowing blessing and 
beauty and grandeur um, to demonstrate like what you've accomplished, but also to benefit the community in some way. Like community is formed as people become great. Um, it's probably more complex than that, but really it just feels like reading through these different philosophers, it kind of be goal of life kind of becomes to experience happiness in the sense of the gods shining upon you by having a, a virtuous life that's filled with money and property and goodwill and great things. And that's awesome. But it does kind of feel like the man is an Island kind of context where when you read the Christian virtues in the list that Paul gives us here specifically, and there's virtue lists all over the new Testament, but this one specifically, we, we do see a lot of just how that is meant to be expressed within community. And I think that's one of the things that the scriptures provide that we don't necessarily get just by looking reflectively on humanity is the scriptures provide a context to say you were designed to exist within community and specifically within the covenant community of faith that Christ formed through his death and resurrection. Right? This was the communion meal, right? This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my body, which is for you. And somehow we are grafted into the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body and we are all members of this body. So part of the Christian journey is learning how to kind of walk and live and thrive as the uh, figurative, but literal in a sense, body of Christ on earth. And so this is a very Christian way of viewing the world. And so really, I remember Pastor Larry gave a message one time that said, hey, community is the practice of belonging practice living out belonging in the local church. And actually next week in our sermon, we'll talk about just all these barriers that get in the way and some hot, some hard stories of folks that I know who just have had a hard time breaking in. I think there are structural reasons, right? Christian people love each other. Um, and then you're new and they all love each other and you feel like you're an outsider and it's hard to break in, right? Or there's fear, right? I don't know if I want to show up at somebody's house and join a life group, right? Or uh, there's a, a, a lack of knowledge on how to break into a, a Christian community. Maybe you have some friends and maybe you're all Christians, but it just feels like, hey, we hang out, we watch movies, we talk, but is Christ the center of this thing? It's hard to switch that or flip that switch and become a robust community. So first plug, come back next week. We'll talk about that very specifically. <laughs> um, but but second, I think the the tip that I would give for someone looking to get into community is is almost just to, to force yourself to take the time to allow God to graft you together with other people. Uh, you know, it's a the idea of being in covenant community in God's people, I think part of a covenant is just committing to it, right? You think of the covenant marriage, you're in a covenant with your spouse, um, but part of that covenant is you're committing to be with this spouse. And I have found in my life, the times that I have finally broken into community in a new city or in a new place has been when I have finally said, you know what, I'm just going to commit to this group of people, even though they seem like weirdos, or even though I feel awkward, or even though we're not like super getting along. And over time, I found myself falling in love with a group of people through just the repetitions of meeting in a small group or coming and hanging out over and over and over again. Over time, God grafted us together emotionally um, when we just stuck our bodies in the same physical place week after week in our small group. So I'd say if you want to get involved in community, find one, stick with it and keep going back um, and keep making the effort. And hey, feel free to put yourself out there and just say, hey, I'd love to get connected. Um, can someone help me and and see what God does as you commit to that process? Yeah. Uh, over here thinking about, you know, being the pastor of discipleship and life groups. One of the big hurdles that I see in the East Bay area is definitely um, being busy, mm. like just being in so many different things. And you almost have to intentionally try for this. 
and uh you know the common phrase you get what you you get out what you put in and um what you get out is a community that forgives like we're seeing in the scripture here that loves like we're seeing here and that strives for these Christian virtues and encourages one another. And it's, it's invaluable. I mean, it's just so eye opening when you finally do break through. And so my encouragement out there would be, uh, keep plugging away. You know, we're not perfect and people aren't perfect, but, uh, you know, it can happen. Well, in addition to the not perfect comment, I think part of what we see in this text even is that you really can't practice the one another's of scripture until you get past the point where you see that people aren't perfect. Right. Right. Because like when you first get involved in a life group, there's nothing to forgive because everyone looks perfect. <laughs> That's part of the reason it's hard. He's like, these people are all perfect except right. for me. But then you start facing these conflicts, these issues, these hardships, someone fails you. And it's like, Oh, I'm done with these people. That's actually just the beginning. You're finally getting to the place mm. that you can practice these virtues because these virtues cannot be practiced until you start to see some of the dark side of the people in your community, which happens through time. So I think part of an, another hiccup or hardship that people have a hurdle is that we tend to run when things get hard, when the scriptures teach us that that's when community actually starts. Mm. And so I would encourage anyone here who's like, man, I, I liked my small group, but now someone's being a weirdo. It's like, now you finally get to practice how to bear with one another and <laughs> confront one another lovingly or whatever it is. Um, that's when these virtues can begin. Leads to the final verse of our Colossians 3, uh, 12 to 14 section. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Uh, at the end of your sermon, you had mentioned uh, the four virtues again, just put into a Christian context. So you said wisdom, righteousness, self-control, and courage, as opposed to wisdom, uh, moderation, justice, and, and courage. Um, and so I want to ask this question uh, through the lens of the theme that we've been talking about this. Because um, I, I can imagine people still seeing there's a lot of personal application in all of these four uh, virtues, right? You can pursue wisdom by just locking yourself in and reading more books. You can pursue righteousness by um, paying attention to how you live and how you live only. You can pursue self-control by like really, um, you know, watching what you do and you can pursue courage by like having this self-talk sort of thing. All of those that I just mentioned are self-centered and yet we have just gotten done talking about like the value of doing all this in community. And I think this is where love binds all things together. And so what I want to ask you is, um, with these four virtues, how does love either enhance this? How does love bind it all together? How does, um, how do you miss the boat if you don't have a loving community in this, in these, uh, endeavors? Love just becomes, I mean, every sentence you said about love there, just thought of a different Bible verse about love, right? Like <laughs> yeah. binds them There's all together in perfect there, right? yeah, yeah. unity. First Corinthians 13, if you don't have love, right? Uh, love is the greatest commandment according to Jesus, according to Paul, right? According to the reading of the old Testament as well. Uh, so love, 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 love <laughs> is, this is the, the Christian pinnacle virtue, uh, which is kind of a head scratcher for the philosophers of the time, right? It feels like they didn't really have anything that close to love with Plato, Aristotle. I think they talked about Philadelphia, that brotherly love is not necessarily a virtue, but just a good thing to be in community. But really, we don't really understand what love is 
until we see Jesus lay down his life for the church. And the New Testament authors talk a lot about, okay, now we know what love is, right? First John is all about this too, right? That now we know what love is because we've seen it in Jesus. And this Greek word agape, agapao, um, which we translate in our New Testament studies as this is like self-sacrificial covenant love, um, kind of reminds us of this like hesed in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word of like loving kindness, covenant love that God has for his people. We only see that demonstrated in God's love for humankind. This is not something that we see naturally by looking at each other and uh, seeing the way that we treat people, but only by seeing how God has revealed himself to us as a faithful God, as a a loving God, as a gracious God, as a long-suffering God, all of these different attributes of God that we don't share within his infinitude, infinitude, Man, only in Christ do we see this virtue. And so now Paul reminds us that, hey, this is this is one of those things that's different about this way of life is that love binds all of these things together in perfect unity. You picture this, this garment, right? We talked about putting off this old garment, all this dirty stuff you used to do. Now put on all these new virtues. And it's almost like you're putting on all these new clothes. And then Paul hands you like the belt for your like Greek bathrobe or something. It says, <laughs> hey, tie this around your waist, bind it. It's called love and it'll hold the whole thing together. So I, I do believe... Even if you're if you're in community right now and you're like, man, I I might need to exercise patience or long suffering or confrontation or these different things that I might need to do. Anything you'd read in the Old and New Testament would say, as you do that, keep love at the forefront of your mind. And love is the reason you're going to call your brother out because you want to see him flourish, right? So uh, love, love holds everything together. That is like the pinnacle Christian thought. And I really do think that is probably... Uh, besides the gospel itself, in terms of secular philosophy, love probably becomes what Christianity adds to the world um, as the Christian religion is formed, is we've extended past Aristotle, past Socrates, past Plato, and we've said, let's talk about self-sacrificial love and humility. And this is what the church was always marked for, was the way they loved one another and the way they sacrificed themselves in love for the world outside the doors of the church. I think that's an amazing picture of what the church is meant to be, a loving community uh, full of people who aren't perfect, but are um, learning together, who are trying to become great and virtuous in the eyes of the kingdom, which is sort of that upside down vision of laying down your life. Uh, Whoever will be first will be last. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of those concepts that you mentioned in your sermon. And so if you're not connected in a community, we'd love to connect with you. Um, to make some first steps towards that end, uh, whether that is, you know, finding the right community for you or um, perhaps even opening up your space to start something. So uh, either way, we'd love to connect with you. Um, And hopefully you can find that loving community here at Three Crosses. We always say welcome home uh, here on Sundays, but uh, we really want you to feel that this is your home where you can grow in these virtues together. And so uh, with that encouragement, uh, Pastor Danny, we'll see you next week uh, moving through Colossians 3. Sounds good. Can't wait to do it.